I sat around for a good time trying to come up with a homily for this weekend. There's so many things that you can focus on when the story is so familiar to everyone who's listening, as is the parable of the gospel we heard tonight. We all know the story of the prodigal son. We've heard people talk about the youngest son's greed, his fall, his conversion, the father's mercy, the older son's pride. So yes, we have heard the story. And so I thought today we could take a closer look, run down the verses, and see if there's anything else to be found that perhaps we haven't seen before. And so we begin. A man had two sons. This is our Lord's first line. And it's essential because it means that there's going to be two occurrences at the end, two outcomes. Otherwise, only one, story, one son would be necessary for the story. And so we know the younger son asked for his inheritance before it's rightfully his. What he's asking is that the father treat him as if he's already taken his estate. Or in other words, as if the father is already dead. This isn't just a greedy boy. He is leaving his father and his brother behind. They are dead to him. And all that is valuable to him is the money that he takes with him when they are gone. So why wait? Just take the cash and go. That is his request. It seems obviously wrong to our ears. Certainly none here would read this passage and say what the younger son is requesting is somehow justified or that it's respectful towards his father. All of us, as the adopted sons of God through baptism, are promised a share in the inheritance of our father. And knowing the riches of the father, none here would surely turn down the opportunity to gain them. Yet so many Christians find it logical in their mind, find it justified in their mind, to demand or to expect that God will give them their inheritance when they run from his house. I've been asked by several students at our school and by other Christians about why God allows people to go to hell. Surely, they say, if God is all loving, he will accept us as we are. He wants us to be happy. He loves us. He would never condemn us. And after all these platitudes, they then excuse their failure to attend Mass or to go to confession or to obey the laws of fasting and absence during Lent or their continual practice of some particular vice because a loving God would never condemn someone. But what is this if not a demanding of our inheritance away from the Father? Are we not simply telling God, act as if you don't exist? as if you didn't give us any laws to follow. Because if you truly love me, you will give me everything that I want so that I can leave you forever and be happy my own way. But the father in our Lord's parable does give in to the wishes of his son. And so the boy takes the cash and runs, and he squandered his inheritance in a life of dissipation. Apart from the father, we are all bound to find ourselves in the same place. I've heard it more than a few times since I've been ordained. When someone comes up to me, perhaps after Mass, perhaps in the confessional, usually with tears, and they say, I know I've been away from God so long. I don't like myself when I do that. I need to do better. We know this lowest state, and we don't want to be there. And usually in our pride, we don't immediately do the obvious thing and try to go back. Instead, we just attempt to solve things on our own. 
And so we had these self-help books now and various clubs and support groups and people who run YouTube channels to motivate us to some supposedly perfect way of living. And perhaps with the help of these measures, our life gets a little better. But we're not returned to where we are. Eventually, this, please God, will lead us to the recognition of an incredible thought. How many of my father's hired workers have more than enough food to eat? But here am I dying from hunger. The phrase that St. Luke uses in this verse is really interesting. The hired workers of the father have more than enough food. Perhaps a better translation would be an overabundance of food. It's the same phrase that Luke uses in the miracle of the multiplication of the loaves. When the apostles gather all the fragments of bread together, such that there's such an overabundance of bread left that it fills 12 baskets full. Those who enjoy the Father's company are not simply filled. They have so much that they don't know what to do with it all. The Father's wealth is infinite love because he is infinite love. And so urged on by this realization, the youngest son desires to go home. But notice that it isn't some heroic desire that motivates him to return. He's still thinking of his own good, but it's enough. In the same way, Christ will work with our less than perfect motives. He desires that we all have sorrow for our sins because they offend him. But he is more than willing to take us back when we simply fear the punishment of hell. This imperfect contrition is enough to gain the Father's mercy. But it is not gained by any great work. The youngest son does not return with the promise of repayment or with a bargain in his mind. He won't agree to work for a term or to build something or to undergo any sort of punishment. His condition for his return is his total surrender to become a servant of his father. And so he rehearses his speech. He prepares to deliver it to the father, hoping he'll be convinced and show mercy to him. But notice that he doesn't approach cowardly. He doesn't try to slip into the property unnoticed, hoping that his father will eventually see him and speak first. No, he resolves to face his father honestly, without hiding the truth, to face the possibility of utter rejection. But it's not rejection that he receives. In the same way, when we reach the point that we all must surely reach and acknowledge that only God's mercy will aid us, Our only choice of action must be to face the reality of our situation and lay it bare before God. Before God in the confessional. Not mincing words, not making excuses, not forging euphemisms for our faults. Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I no longer deserve to be called your son. Think about that line. I no longer deserve to be called your son. Before each of us were baptized, we were children of the world. We had no hope of salvation. In baptism, God looked at us and adopted us as his own children and promised us his inheritance. So that's something people confuse. The Bible doesn't say that God makes us his children when he makes us, when he creates us. We become his children in baptism because he adopts us. We are children of the world before them. So he adopts us. He gives us this sense of sonship with him. For the Christian to admit 
that we no longer deserve to be called God's son is in some way to realize that once our, our once beautiful state after baptism has been totally ruined, that we realize that God's children shouldn't rightfully look this way. But at the point of the story isn't the son's embarrassment, and I'm sure he was embarrassed as his older brother gazed down at him in anger and incredulity. The point of the parable is that the father is merciful. He shows total and complete forgiveness. He doesn't give in to the request of the son and make him his servant. He restores him entirely to where he was before, as if he never left. And that is the effect of sacrificial confession. When we depart the confessional, it is as if we were just baptized and entirely blameless once more. You see, so often we treat the sacrament of confession as if it just, the absolution is the natural response that God has to our sins. That our role is to sin and God's role is to forgive. No, the sacrament is far less about our sins and far more about God's mercy. And this makes sense to me in my position when I have all these multiple penitents coming in for confession one after the other, and you hear the same thing again and again, and it all gets jumbled up in your head, and if it goes on for too long, it either gets aggravating because you feel like you've given the same advice to the past 20 people, or because you simply get bored of hearing the same thing again and again, and everyone has a different voice and a different problem and a different euphemism for the thing they did. But what's the constant? The absolution. It's present in every confession. It's unchanging both in its form and in its effect. Two different people come in the confessional to confess their personal sins and both come out equally purified and spotless. The sacrament is our true introduction to the Father's joy. And just as in the parable, our restoration to the throne of grace is consummated in a meal at the Father's table, the Holy Eucharist. Here, the superabundant food for which we longed, is now given to us in our hunger. And it never stops flowing, every day, from every altar and every Mass. All we have to do is approach the table with our hearts prepared to receive. And so what did the second son, the older son, who never left? This son is like many of us, who, coming to Mass each Sunday, never face the Father with courage or honesty who never go to confession, but who present themselves for Holy Communion each week, maybe each day, without a second thought to the great benefit that they receive. It's just what they do. This son, as well, must face a conversion, a realization that, yes, everything the Father has belongs to him as well, but it does not belong to him out of his own merit, but because the Father has given it to him. For the older son in the parable... He's just now at the beginning of this realization. Our prayer is that the same can be true for us. Regardless of the role that we find ourselves in this parable, we are the beneficiaries of God's love. His love wishes to take us from mere servants and raise us to the dignity of sons and daughters. May it be so for each of us. As St. John Vianney teaches, The saints did not all begin well, but they all ended well. Amen.